Good afternoon. This is Mac on the Rock on the Concrete Conservative with Ed Vidal. Hello there. Ed, hello there, Ed. How are you? We Great. got a tremendous guest today that had something to, he has something to say. Let's see if he agrees with my assessment that the Trump economy really took off, not so much because of the tax cuts, but because of deregulation and getting rid of the individual mandate. That's part of it. On the line will be Dr. Hyman, who wrote a book well, Professor Dave, Overcharged. Professor David Hyman of Georgetown Law School and the Cato Institute. Good afternoon. This is uh, Mac on the Rock, Ed Vidal, the Concrete Conservative on WSQF 94.5. Who do I have the pleasure to speak with? Uh, David Hyman. Nice to meet you, David. How are you today? Good. I'm good. Thanks for having me on. Well, I only have one friend that was smart enough to make it into Georgetown, and uh, so I'd like to know how educated he was, and I, I'm going to make that assessment well, uh, after speaking course, with you. One of David's uh, students at Georgetown Law is Tiffany Trump, right, David? Um, I don't have her in my class, but she is enrolled here. All right. Okay. Right, let, me I, t- let me tell our audience who you are. You're David Hyman. You're a University of Chicago College Medical School and Law School graduate, and you're now a professor at Georgetown Law School and a fellow at the Cato Institute, and you have co-authored a book on Overcharged, Why Americans Pay Too Much for Health Care. And today we want you to you know, give us your standard uh, Health Economics 101 lecture on what's going on with the uh, health care industry in America. Sure. Um, so, first of all, thanks for having me. And uh, second, uh, you can read more about our book at overchargedforhealthcare.com. Uh, you can download a couple of the chapters for free. Uh, and if you like it, you can buy it at amazon.com. Uh, my co author is a guy named Charlie Silver, who's a professor at the University of Texas School of Law. And uh, we've been co authors for a long time. The book is published by the Cato Institute, uh, and it sort of tries to take a fairly comprehensive look at why is our healthcare system so dysfunctional? Why is it so expensive? Uh, why does it, uh, you know, have very high prices and often not very good quality? Um, and some things were truly exceptional, but lots and lots of things we don't seem to be doing such a great job. So why don't I start by talking about a topic uh, that uh, people are really often very concerned about, which are surprise medical bills. Have you heard about these? Oh, absolutely. Surprise medical beer. I'm uh, a victim of surprise medical bills. Yes. So when I, when I give talks, I often ask people, how many of you have gotten a surprise medical bill or know someone who has? And typically, two-thirds to three-quarters of the audience raises their hand. And these are all people who have health insurance, right? They're, Absolutely. Uh, in my, in my case, in my case, it was 85000 for five days in the emergency room and regular hospital to remove my gallbladder. And I was stunned that $85,000 was spent in five days. So was that over and above what was covered by insurance, or was that... Partly covered by insurance or fully covered? Uh, oh. Well, uh, 4000 of it was my deductible, so minus the 4000 So 81 was covered by them and 4000 for me. But if okay. I didn't if I didn't have the 4000 I think they would have let me rot in the, in the hallway there. Well, probably not. Um, and, you know, that's a sort of separate set of issues. But 
your example illustrates, you know, the very high price issue. Um, but part of the difficulty is that most of the prices that you hear thrown around are just phony baloney numbers. They don't bear any relationship to what anybody pays except for the people who don't have insurance um, or sometimes the people who have a high deductible health plan uh, where the, the retail price, the rack rate, uh, is exceptionally high. And part of the reason why we see that is it you know, maximizes the bargaining leverage of the provider. It doesn't bear any relationship to what people who have insurance actually are paying or what their insurance is paying. My bet is your insurance company probably paid between half and two-thirds of that amount. Well, I, uh, I was always... Of the 81000 Yeah, okay. I really don't know for sure, but I was, be, I was bewildered by the fact that the industry is so geared towards the insurance companies that there is no price list as other uh, economic... Uh, ecosystems in our economy all have price lists. This is the only industry that doesn't have a price list. They can charge uh, the MRI for one patient that's of low income, and that same MRI with the same machine and the same effort and the same expertise involved can be charged $1,500, $2,000 to a higher-priced premium uh, customer. And that's always been appalling to me. I don't know why there isn't a price list in the medical field. So it, it sounds like you've kind of read the book, uh, or at least you're covering some of the same ideas that we do in the book. Um, you are correct that there are no, uh, you know, there's not a one price. If you go to buy a television at Best Buy um, or a car, uh, cars are a little bit more complicated, but there's still a sticker price that everybody uses as a starting point. Um, and for lots of things, that's the price at which it's sold, leaving aside sales. Um, and coupons and things like that. Whereas in healthcare, we see a huge amount of what uh, economists would call price discrimination, where people are charged different amounts uh, for a whole variety of reasons. The only other sector of the economy where we see anything that looks like this is education, uh, where you know uh, a combination of loans and uh, tuition grants or grant aid mean that the rack rate the, the full tuition often bears no relationship to what lots of people are paying. And in healthcare, we see the same thing. And so, why do we see that? Well, the argument of the book is because it's not a consumer focused market. Hospitals and other healthcare providers view insurers as their customers, and they structure the market in ways that serve the interests of hospitals and insurers and not the interest of patients. Now, this is not to say that there isn't a role for insurance in healthcare. Uh, it's the same role that we see insurance playing in other market sectors, where it deals with low probability but catastrophic outcome kinds of problems. In healthcare, we use insurance the wrong way. We use it for anything and everything under the sun, and we see you know legislators and regulators trying to load up the insurance policy to cover more things, often things that don't have a very high price tag. But what that means is we're using insurance to prepay for health care. We're not actually using it to deal with, you know, potential catastrophes. Now, David, I've heard that a lot of this goes back to World War II, where the federal government imposed wage and price controls, and then one of the ways that employers could lure workers, which they needed to do, they couldn't pay higher wages, so they started offering these benefits 
like health insurance, and then that became part of the package. It was uh, uh, grant uh, put into the tax code that way. Is do you do you trace it back to that? I so Ed, you are correct that uh, the reason why employers are such a prominent player in debates about health insurance and health reform uh, is that most Americans uh, get their health insurance through their place of employment or the place of employment of a relative. And historically, you're correct, the reason that started is the World War II wage and price controls, and then obviously the war ended, but there were sizable tax subsidies that were given for people who obtain their coverage through their place of employment. And so there's an implicit subsidy for doing that. And that's the source of uh, what um, you know economists would call both vertical and horizontal inequity problems. Horizontal because people who get their insurance through their place of employment get a subsidy that other people don't. But vertical inequity because that subsidy is worth more to people who make more because we have a progressive tax system. So if you're a higher income person, the exclusion from income of the value of your health insurance provided through your employer can be worth two to three times as much as it is to a low income worker. So that undoes the progressive nature of the income tax to some extent. Yes, that is correct. Okay. And it's not an accident that, you know, health care and health insurance, like education, are the parts of our uh, economy that don't perform very well and that are experiencing, you know, greater than the rest of the economy inflation. And so one of the arguments in the book is if we think we're spending too much on health care, we shouldn't be subsidizing health insurance by providing sizable tax subsidies. Okay, so how do, how 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 did we uh, now that we know kind of how we got to this? What what are your uh, suggested approaches to uh, analyze the problem and maybe solve it? So the first part of the book spends a lot of time analyzing all of the problems that we see, and we've only sort of scratched the surface in the the you know ten minutes or so we've been talking. There's a bunch of chapters on pharmaceuticals, which are their own sort of separate set of problems. Well, let, let me wait, wait, wait. Let me care. let me ask you a quick question about pharmaceuticals because here in Florida, the new governor, who's supposed to be a conservative, has is pushing for a plan. Has not gotten through the legislature to import pharmaceuticals from Canada, uh, thinking that that's going to be cheaper. What what do you what do you guys think of that? So the book actually talks about this issue as well, um, and. Uh, let, let me give just a little bit of background so people can understand the basic market dynamics. So they're really, for our purposes today, two different types of pharmaceuticals. They're branded pharmaceuticals that are protected by patents uh, and that have a pretty high price point for that reason. And then they're generic pharmaceuticals, which are things that used to be on patent, branded drugs, and they're now generic, and so they're much, much cheaper and readily available. And we've seen, you know, pretty substantial uh, high prices and some price increases for branded drugs. Uh, one of the drugs that some of your listeners are probably familiar with is uh, insulin, mm -hmm. which is actually a biologic. It's a third type of drug, but we mm -hmm. can treat it as a branded drug for our purposes today. 
that's seen pretty steady price increases over time. Um, and a part, big part of that is there isn't effective competition in the market for that drug. Uh, there's, you know, three suppliers, and it's easy for them to raise their prices in tandem. And until there's a, you know, generic equivalent, uh, multiple suppliers, it's sort of econ 101. Uh, few suppliers mm -hmm. can constrain supply. Prices go up if demand is the same, right? Yep. Um, generic drugs, we've seen historically generic drugs have been, been a real success story in lowering drug spending. Uh, but we've seen pretty dramatic price spikes with some of them as well. Uh, Martin Shkreli, who some of your listeners can probably remember, uh, the sort of pharma bro, as he was called, the poster boy for bad behavior, um, basically got a monopoly over a drug that had long been generic. It was off patent for years and years, wasn't used by that many people, but he dramatically increased the price of the drug from, mm -hmm. I think, around... Seven thirteen dollars to about seven hundred and fifty dollars a dose, right? Well, Very dramatic price increase. Well, we have another villain I'd like to bring to your attention. Uh, your attention, Jonathan Gruber. Uh, I think he's under uh, a paragraph here. The three-legged making the three-legged stool the three-legged stool stronger. What do you think about Jonathan Gruber? You know, Professor Gruber is a, a first-rate health economist who has very strong beliefs about uh, what social policy ought to look like, um, and he was sort of brutally candid about the consequences of transparency. He said if people understand how much this uh, uh, piece of legislation is going to cost, it's dead. They're mm -hmm. not going to vote for it. So it's a sort of interesting theory of how we should govern ourselves. Yeah. Let's just put it that way. Yeah, so in other words, a platonic view. Okay, so basically, you're you're giving him a pass. You don't find you find it just hard hard reality, not uh, nothing uh, mischievous or insidious about his comments. You just feel that's just the truth. Period. Well, I I live in Washington now, and that's the way that the game apparently is played here, which is you. Uh, you know, you, you, you tell people I've got a great solution and you don't uh, necessarily be upfront with them about what its consequences will be and what its costs really are. Um, okay. And, and, you know, this is a game that both political parties play. It's unfortunate. Um, it sort of undermines our ability to actually have confidence in government action uh, and to believe the you know, estimates of here's what this is going to cost. Yep. Uh, I think it... Yeah, fair, yeah. fair enough, fair yeah. enough. So it's... what were you saying about uh, pharmaceuticals, branded and generic? I, I know that. My dad was a pharmacist, so I know that much. Okay, so then the issue that you should be asking yourself is um, what's the cause of these, you know, high prices and price spikes? Because those are two different things in each of these markets. Right? So let's take generics first because it's a little bit simpler. So generics, there's no intellectual property that's being protected. They should sell at the cost of production, more or less. Mm -hmm. uh, and to the extent they're not, maybe something funny is going on. Uh, and the something funny has turned out to be some combination of uh, consolidation in the market, problems with the supply chain, and sometimes abuse of the FDA approval process. Mm -hmm. And so our argument 
uh, in the book is if there are price spikes with generics, the FDA ought to be just automatically waving in manufacturers of the same generic that right. are selling it elsewhere in the world. We ought to just wave, wave them right. in, W-A-I-V-E, them okay. in. Okay, but and, now as an aside... importation of those drugs right off the bat. Right, I agree with that. But as an aside, maybe you can treat this later, hasn't the FDA itself been a cause of the problem by stopping the approval of new drugs? So the FDA um, has historically had a backlog of generic approvals, yeah. right? And, uh, you know, the... The, the difficulty is they appear to take a uh, first-in, first-out approach to evaluating the, you know, applications to sell a generic drug. Yep. So even if the drug has experienced a huge price spike um, and somebody suddenly files an application, it goes to the bottom of the stack. And so one of our arguments has been they ought to prioritize drugs that have had price spikes, and they ought to try and clear this backlog. But in addition to clearing the backlog, they ought to tap the global market for generic pharmaceuticals, right? right. So Shacrelli could never have raised the price if everyone understood you could source it from somewhere else in the world. So that you just want that to be paradigm here in the United States, period. Yeah, let, so Certainly we can have a global for market. generic drugs, you know, you might want to say only if the price has gone up by X percent if you want to, you know, have at least some oversight over the generic drug supply. But no. there's no intellectual property rights to be protected. It's right. just a pricing problem right. and a production problem. What well, about well, the uh, branded? I mean, is so that... The branded is a harder problem because we want to create incentives for innovation, mm -hmm. right? You, you want to encourage people to develop the next blockbuster drug. Yep. Um, and there are, you know, examples of absolute cures, right? We now have a cure for hepatitis C. It's a, a huge breakthrough, affects a lot, lots of people. But at the same time, we've got a whole bunch of cancer drugs that appear to offer at best marginal improvements, and they're being priced at a very high price point. And we've set up a lot of our system to just pay whatever price is asked, which is kind of stupid, right? Yep. What I tell people is if your negotiations with your boss involved him saying, Ed, tell me what you'd like to be paid next year, and Ed, you'd name a high figure. And it wouldn't matter how high, they just pay it. Guess what? You'd start naming high figures. Infinity. Infinity, well, infinity and beyond. Right. Well, Ed's been doing that here at Blink Radio since yeah. he started here. Yep, He's been yep. asking for a price increase. That, that's how I handle many. So I tell him, okay, uh, two bucks instead of one buck. I was going to say, we'll double your salary from zero to zero. Right. How about that? No, I'll, I'll pay for coffee, 85 cents. Well, there you go. <laughs> um, so, you know, getting some restraints on the buy side is going to be an important part of the picture. But the other thing is... And what we argue for in the book is a prize system, P-R-I-Z-E, um, has lots of potential benefits relative to our current approach, which is we give people patent rights, and then we ask them to figure out whatever price they want, and then we pay it. Mm -hmm. um, and so for, a, for, a limited, for a limited duration of time, you, uh, I'm assuming. Yeah. Well, a prize system, you just write them a check, and then you can produce it at cost. Okay. Oh, so you give them their profit right off the get-go. Right, right, right. Yes. That's, that's very innovative. That's a novel idea. It's, it's suddenly it's generic at that point. Yep. You're making well, it generic. And the federal government does that? The, the federal 
government could do that. A state could do it if it wanted to. Um, you know. Yeah, the the, uh, I guess Cato would it, prefer that. It puts the costs on budget, right? If the state or the federal government wants to encourage innovation in a particular area, it can offer a bigger prize. Right. Instead of a patent for X years, you just say, Instead okay. Instead of a patent for X years, right. an open-ended reimbursement of whatever mm-hmm. they happen to ask for. And how, what, was the, what was the reaction? What was the response you get when you propose that idea to the industry itself? Do they completely shun the idea, or do they consider it? Um, so the industry, I think, views... There, lots of people are comfortable with the way that things are working because they're making money, although you know, the industry, I think, feels under perpetual assault. Um, I think a prize system creates lots of administrative complexities, uh, and so, you know, we take those seriously in the book and say we're going to need to work these out. Um, but, you know, our current system is not doing such a great job for us either. So a prize system just has to do better than our existing flawed system. Now, the price, the price system, although it sounds very novel to me, what would, how would that impact the possibility of the government uh, considering funding catastrophic care? Wouldn't it tap the government out if it's paying exorbitant fees for profits on drugs and then there's got to be some other fund for catastrophic care? Because I think the government's going to want to solve this crisis by allowing us to cover ourselves for emergency treatments and stuff. But catastrophic care like cancer, uh, there has to be a huge, and basically a, a fund of entitlement spending. Do you believe the prize... The drug price idea, you know, uh, would impact that to the point where the government couldn't even offer that option? So a couple of thoughts, right? First, a chunk of that catastrophic cost is drug costs, right? So drug costs currently are about 17% of total health care spending. Sometimes that's incredibly valuable because it reduces spending on other areas of health or health care, or it, you know, has huge benefits uh, in terms of improvements in health. Um, and some of it is just, you know, waste, fraud, and abuse, and the book is full of examples of that. Um, so that's the first observation. The second observation is it's really important to get prices down. If we want to make health care more affordable, it's mostly a price problem. It's not so much a volume problem, although there are areas where we do have some volume questions. Uh, And the advantage of the prize system is we have, you know, the payment of a known amount, and then the cost of getting everybody the drugs is, you know, nominal at most. It's pennies a pill instead of $100,000 per patient. Uh, Yeah, it seems very appealing because if they get the profit from the get-go from the government, they don't even have to market the drug and save a... uh, their profit could be pure profit at this point. The, yeah, the generic it, it would could probably change their distribution patterns, yeah, and the way they market their drugs. Um, but the other issue to recognize is, you know, we, we're currently running a bunch of different health care programs, um, one for the elderly, one for the poor. There's a veterans program and an active military program and federal employees and state employees. You sort of get the idea. Uh, half of our health spending currently runs through the government, federal, state, and local. Um, so we don't, you know, we don't have a purely private system with government oversight. The oh, we're so surprised! And regulator. Yeah, right. Uh, how surprised are we? Uh, uh, 
We've been standing on our heads for quite some time, as well as the Cato Institute. They're probably standing on their hands and their heads. So we're basically a socialist country because you can, you can say that about our education system as well. Completely socialist. Half of our real estate taxes goes to uh, public school. So if right. half, but, of, half of the medical industry does the same, we're almost socialist. the other half, what percentage is uh, employer provided? Um, what percentage of spending yeah, of, or of, of the population? So well, there are about 170 million people that right. get... Uh, insurance through employer-based right. insurance. Right. Okay. Yep. Okay. Um, at where the the sort of denominator here is say 320 million. Yep. Right. There are about 100 million that are on some form of you know <clears throat> Medicare, Medicaid, uh, Veterans Administration. Right. And I, um, yeah. And I hear the federal workers have a very nice system. So the federal workers, the Federal Employee Health Benefits Program, uh, I think is. It looks a lot like the managed competition model that the Clinton administration was pushing some years okay. ago, where uh, federal employees have a choice of multiple insurers, mm. and there's a sort of contribution, and then they can pay, you know, it, it specify what their out-of-pockets look like and so on. Mm -hmm. um, it, it looks... It's a more functional version of what the exchanges were trying to do, right? Um, but without the the sort of very messed up subsidies right. that we see in the exchanges. Mm -hmm. Okay, so now uh, who's got the best insurance? Is tell me it's not the congressmen and the senators. Um, so the historically, the people who had the best insurance were public school teachers. Right. Yes, I was married to one. That was true. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it made the, the, you may remember the TV show Breaking Bad, right? Uh -huh. the, the lead character uh, is driven to a life of crime because of an illness. I mean, they picked, he's a school teacher, they picked exactly the wrong person to feature. Yeah, really? If, if anybody was protected, um, it was uh, public school teachers. But the rise of uh, what we started off talking about, surprise medical bills, where people who are insured go to an in-network facility, and then they get a surprise bill from somebody who's out of network, uh, has actually changed uh, even the situation of public school teachers. The other related problem is if you're in an emergency, right, and you can't control where you're taken, the ambulance takes right. you to the local hospital, closest one. Yep. Uh, they're out of network, you're potentially looking at very large costs that the you know hospital is going to look to you to satisfy, even though you're insured. Now, there was that, that's something that could have been talked about because Obamacare, that issue was during the Obamacare passage, that wasn't, that wasn't battered about at all, was it? No, so the, you know, the priority, the legislation was called the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act. Um, and it wasn't really about making care affordable. It was mostly about getting insurance coverage for more people through a combination of expanding Medicaid and uh, at creating these exchanges to replace the individual market and adding some consumer protections, which had the consequence of driving up the cost of uh, insurance in those individual markets. So, in other words, a total um, disaster. But it didn't really try to do anything about the surprise medical billing problem. Uh, I, I, I thought so. Their conclusion was, you know, coverage first, and then we'll argue about uh, how to make care more affordable. Um, John Gruber actually, in one of his statements, 
said that very explicitly. He said, if we tried to do a cost containment first, it would never have happened. So we did decided to do coverage first. Now, what uh, what expertise did he bring to the table for him to have led this this uh, this campaign to create Obamacare? Well, in in fairness, I'm not. I, I don't think it's fair to say he led the campaign. He was um, he's one of the you know most well known um, and highly regarded health economists in the country. Um, and he, you know, had his own views on the desirability of the legislation. Uh, he did a lot of work in scoring. Uh, scoring means figuring out what the cost of a particular reform will look like. Uh, Congress and individual congressmen rely heavily on scoring to decide, is this going to break the budget? Will it come in under whatever target we've set? Right, and there was a, a priority to keep the cost of Obamacare under a ceiling, and so uh, Professor Gruber was very involved in generating estimates of whether particular legislation would or wouldn't succeed in doing that. Now, he was uh, a, a vigorous and you know outspoken proponent of the legislation. He had a moral view, which is you know we should cover people against uh, the cost of health care. Now, here's a good question for you that um, I wrote a book uh, unrelated to healthcare, but I, I, I'm basically making suggestions on how to, to reinvent the United States, how we do things instead of just being so reform minded. What is the real basis and premise for the actuaries to assume that we, the people, have to accept a deductible in our policies if we're already paying a premium? And, it, and I don't want to hear that the, that the price would just go up because, quite frankly, you can insure someone without forcing them to come out cash out of pocket. And, it, you know, you really can't fake pain. So fraud can't be the reason. And, uh, you know, false claims and, and, and the like, because pain and disease are pain and disease. You don't fake these things. So what is the real basis for having a deductible as a paradigm in the insurance business? Okay, so uh, let, me, <sighs> let me give you two responses, right? So the, maybe three. So the first observation is, Typically, the reason why you have a deductible is to address a problem known as moral hazard. Um, and moral hazard is not about morals. It's about people's behavior being influenced by whether they have insurance or not. So the unfortunate formulation that people use is skin in the game. I don't particularly like that formulation, but the idea is when you're out of pocket, uh, and still willing to receive care, it indicates that you actually need that care. You're not just doing it uh, because, you know, it's easier and simpler than the alternatives. Well, that's a really lame, lame, lame argument. And if that is well, paradigm, that's our problem. You, you, you may view it as a lame argument, but it is one of the two big argument, big ideas behind the way in which insurance is structured in all sorts of markets. All, so why do you insurance. think you have a deductible? Okay, so that's your what we're, that's the problem right there. That's fraud from the get go. No. Yes, there's no, 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 no moral why hazard. Do you think you have God. a deductible on car insurance. Well, right. they, in there, and there, there's no pain and there's no disease. I can see someone wrecking their car because they have the dent on the right that's too big to fix. I can see them crashing the car to the left. So they get a, a completely new car, a completely new paint job, but that doesn't affect his physical body except for the risk of when he crashes the car. Well, but it actually turns out that people's willingness to consume health care is actually influenced by 
whether they face an out-of-pocket cost right. and how big it is. There are a bunch of things where there's not going to be any effect whatsoever, right? So if you're in a car accident and you're bleeding out, it doesn't matter whether you have zero deductible or $10,000. You're going to get to the hospital and you're going to get treatment, right? Correct. But for lots of problems, right. the, it's less put clear cut. And so the logic of uh, a deductible is to make sure that the patient actually values and needs the treatment, and a deductible is an imperfect way of taking account of that. The other important factor, and I think this is worth highlighting, is you can think about insurance as being influenced by how big the premium is, how broad the coverage is, and whether and how big there's a deductible. And you can mess around with two of those, but you'll have an impact on the third. Right? So if I want to keep the premium low and I want really comprehensive coverage, I'm going to need a big deductible to make the numbers work. Right. Okay, and see, that's that, where that's, we've gone with Obamacare. Well, that's the, that's the reason why I asked you, who, who knows a lot more than I do, to make the numbers work is idiom for actuaries and their lexicon. Yeah, but that, and that's where we're going with Obamacare. People have these huge deductibles. Well, guess what? So it's they because, hardly even it's use because it. the moral hazard does not exist. Yeah. It's just... It's just created out of thin no. air. No, no. Moral hazard does exist, right? In other words, uh, are you saying that I will ignore my uh, pneumonia because I don't have insurance and I'll just go ahead and yeah. have it so bad that I'll yeah. go ahead and, and die? And if you had complete coverage or you only had to pay 100 you'd be in the hospital every week. So yep. let's, instead of doing pneumonia, let's do your knee hurts a little. Okay. Okay. So if your knee hurts a little and it doesn't cost you anything to go see the doctor, you might be there more often, right? Whereas if well, it might keep bucks, you from getting... Wait, wait, if it's 100 bucks, you might think more seriously about, well, maybe I should wait, maybe I should try some ibuprofen, maybe I should stretch out. The idea here is that individually, for serious things, deductibles don't make any sense. But for most things, most of the time, they get better on their own, and so trying to make sure people access the healthcare system when they actually need to and not when they don't is what the deductible is trying to do ever so imperfectly. Yep. Yeah, I can't disagree with that more. All right, all right. So what was the other <laughs> argument on deductibles? Yeah, because the the, other, you're asking the your patient to pay a doctor. Deductibles, which I think is why we're seeing these huge deductibles, is, you know, the... Obamacare, or PAPACA, as the legislation is actually, that's its actual acronym. Um, PAPACA basically said to insurance companies, you need to cover all of these things, and you have to take all comers, and you um, can't charge more than this amount tied to people's income, right? There's a sort of affordability requirement that's in the legislation. And so... They basically specified two of the parameters, and the movable part was the deductible. Right. And so insurance companies said, well, our best guess is the only way we can make these numbers work in order to not lose our shirt and yeah. be out of business is to set really high deductibles, yep. and that's what they did. Okay, so now, but is there is there an environment at any time in our history, I'm assuming after you know post-industrial revolution, is there a time when there wasn't deductibles and, and insurance companies were going out of business just because? 
I don't think there is a time that people can honestly say, well, if we don't have deductibles, we, the insurance company, are going to go out of business. I don't think they can. I don't think there's a litmus test for that. And yet they're making the statement based yeah. on the math. No, deductible has always been part of insurance going back to when insurance well, started. Why? We have a failed Venice system. Because of moral hazard. Because you want to make sure that the, the guy has, like he said, skin in the game. If, you ha- if you're a shipper in Venice. That's immoral. In 1300s and you get insurance from your local Venice exchange or in London at Lloyd's Coffee Shop. The, go- the guys at Lloyd's say, okay, we'll pay, but we want you to pay a portion of the first you know, hundred pounds. That's how moral hazard works in insurance deductibles, right, David? Kind of. Yeah, that. that I mean, the the magnitude of the deductibles now is because of some design choices that are in Obamacare. Right. But the idea behind a deductible is no different than you know, if if the doctor's worried that his waiting room will be overrun if he offers completely free care, and so he charges you some amount. It's and that, the same idea. And that's Insurance why some emergency rooms were shut sure down. serious enough for you to receive right. care. Some, some emergency rooms were shut down because the hospitals couldn't afford people using it as their general practice practitioner. Yeah, so uh-huh, that's a so there goes my problem idea. in lots of ways, which is yeah. our health care delivery system. We've So far, we've been focusing mostly on insurance, but our delivery system is not really set up in a way that makes much sense either, right? So if yeah. you have Medicaid, um, in lots of places, it's very hard for you to find an independent physician who will see you. And so guess what? Even though you're insured, your local hospital emergency department is the place that you right. go. That's not a good place to receive right. primary care. Right, and it's not it's good for either to party. Deal with people with true emergencies, our sort of prototypical auto accident or overdose kind of case. Um, yeah, but, but one of the know, things we uh, I've talked about in another article is a case that actually involves a young African American uh, kid who uh, lived about ten miles from where I am now in D.C. Uh, who went into, covered by insurance, had Medicaid, uh, went into the local emergency department with a toothache, um, and the emergency department didn't have anybody who did dentistry. That's not their scope of service. His mom couldn't find a dentist who would treat him. He had an infected tooth, and two weeks later, uh, he was in an ICU. He ends up dying of a brain infection because... Meningitis. The state, yeah, the state of Maryland wasn't paying enough for any dentist to be willing to treat this kid. Think about it. Yeah, that's know? disgusting. Yeah, but see that my dad was a pharmacist on the southwest side of Chicago, and he was he was not getting reimbursed by the state of Illinois for the Medicaid patients. So half his patients, the uh, for for farm, uh, prescriptions were uh, Medicaid, the other half were private insurance. And Medicaid everywhere, I think, under reimburses, and in Illinois, it's gotten worse. So I used to live in Illinois until relatively recently, and, I mean, they have a long history of taking a very long time to pay, and they don't yep. pay very much. Right. Um, and when I was there, one of the sort of, you know, moments in my decision to leave was I got a letter uh, along with every other employee of the University of Illinois from the chancellor, the first line of which was, don't worry, you still have health insurance. Not good. <laughs> right, and you don't come back from that first line. Uh, but the second line was, but don't be surprised if your provider demands payment in full at the time of services because there's no budget, and so we stopped paying all of our health insurance claims. Holy shit. 
I mean, think about that. It's it's the it's you know it's unfathomable, but if we don't change the way we're thinking, which is what I was suggesting earlier, there's certain things that are embedded in the system in the lexicon of attorneys and healthcare providers and insurance companies yeah. and healthcare bureaucrats that unless they reshuffle this deck, I can see us going to single payer healthcare. And I can see our GDP stuck at 1% yeah. like Europe. But, you know, David, you were talking about how people who go and use emergency rooms like general practice or like dentistry, they're not getting the best treatment because the people, the doctors and the medical staff in the emergency room are there to, you know, pull out bullets and things like that. And knife they're, fights. Yeah, and, knife and fights. car right? accidents. Yeah, all that stuff. And, and, and heart so, attacks. And I know that at the University of Chicago in the late 80s, uh, President Hannah Gray shut down the emergency room because they were, it was being used as a general family practice, uh, and it's being restarted now as it's called a trauma center. Uh, to, to, but part of the job of, for example, Michelle Obama, when she was a vice president for the medical center, was to keep people who couldn't pay for their medical uh, services away from from the hospital. Uh, so, uh, Ed, my recollection is the University of Chicago pulled out of the trauma network okay. back in the 80s. They didn't close the emergency department. Okay. Um, but you're right that they, you know, changed the scope of services because they were losing a lot of money. Um, and they really, you know, it was, if we keep doing this, we're going to have to close the hospital. Right. I think we, we have to do something about the cost of health care and our spending on health care. And our book is written to sort of give people the tools to understand why the system is so expensive and ways in which we could make it less expensive. We actually have a chapter on single payer, right. um, which is titled Blind Alleys and Lost Causes. Yay! <laughs> because we don't, we don't think single payer um, actually fixes these problems. In some ways, it doubles down on the problems that led us to where we are. Well, anybody who studies the National Health Service in England uh, can can tell you that, starting with George Orwell, who was one of their first victims. He was kind of untreated for a disease. He died in, in 1949 after writing his book. And then I bet you that the, the royal baby delivered yesterday or today was not delivered at the NHS hospital. They always go to a private hospital, the Queen Mary University Hospital. So... Anybody who looks at those single-payer systems and is honest about it is going to uh, recoil away from it. So the book talks about this. There's a lot of variation around the world in what people actually mean when they use the term single-payer. And even if you just focused in the United States, when people say single-payer, it's worth asking them, well, do you mean Medicare or do you mean Medicaid? Or the VA. Yeah, VA, right? the the... VA employs physicians directly. Yeah. Yep. Medicare and Medicaid pay independent physicians in hospitals to treat patients. They're not government employees. But Medicare is popular. Medicaid, not so much, right, for the reasons Ed already alluded to. Uh, it's often hard for Medicaid beneficiaries to find a physician who's willing to treat them, which is why they end up in the emergency department so often. And because of their poverty, uh, they're, they're suspect to serious illnesses yeah, so, because yeah. they won't see a doctor on a regular now, basis. David, in the case of education, I think in the beginning you said that education is the only other industry where this kind of price uh, discrimination takes place. But in the case of education, Milton Friedman and others have suggested some you know, uh, uh, silver bullet solutions like a voucher system. Is there anything that's similar in the medical industry? Uh, would a, how would a voucher system work? 
so it turns out we've written a book about this subject, okay. um, and we we actually discuss the use of a voucher type strategy okay. um, to uh, you know change the way that we currently uh, pay for healthcare, right? By turning consumers into pat from passive recipients right. into active purchasers. Right. Um, if you give people a chunk of money and you say if you save it, you can keep it. Yep. And if you spend it, um, you should pick things that you think are valuable and useful to you. Um, and some of those will be healthcare in its current form, and some of them will be, you know, retail medicine. Have you ever been to one of these facilities in your local CVS or? Yes, I have a lot. Target. So that is my doctor, you, by the way. <laughs> could you tell what the prices were before you received the treatment? Well, uh, there was there is a moment in time where you're diagnosed inside the fast the fast track uh, doctor and there is about a 10 minute 15 minute choice for you to make because you can ask by just turning the corner from the doctor's little office there it's like a mm -hmm. literally a closet mm -hmm. and you turn around and ask what this drug they just prescribed me will cost and I can just walk out and not pay right. and not get the drug okay but other than that it's just so beneficiary because they're not charging you for her or his opinion, the doctor's opinion, which is the most import, mm -hmm. important part of the diagnosis. So you're actually just getting hit for the pharmacy cost, which I find extraordinary because of the time is, you know, 20 minutes. And, I, and you're just walking up. Mm -hmm. Of course, it's only for coughs, flus, fevers, nausea. Nothing serious. Yeah. Well, actually, it turns out that's a big chunk of health care that people need right, is okay. these, these kinds of services that can be carved out uh, and handled separately, right? And think about the benefits of it, right? There was, it was open early, it was open late, there was free parking, the wait time was very short, the prices are completely transparent, right? There's a, a, a basically not quite a billboard, but a price list when you walk in that says, you know, if, and the prices are a lot lower, and you get billed and pay immediately rather than waiting three to six months sometimes for bills to show up. Yeah, it was really, it's the way to go. I've been since I turned 50. I haven't seen a regular doctor anymore. Uh, my deductible is, of course, uh, enormous. I'm at $5,000 deductible. So obviously, that's not a factor to even consider. Um, for instance, I cut my. Cut my index finger, severed some nerves that went from the index finger to the thumb. So I, I've lost sensitivity in both the index and the thumb. And then my dog bites me after my surgery. My own dog bites me on the wound. And each time it was 2500 bucks. One to cure me from the infection, uh, one for the nerve damage, and one to cure me from the dog bite. And then after I got hit $5,000 in cash out of my pocket, right. I see months later... That the people who operated on me file, filed a claim with my insurance company since I had given the card there. I had given the card initially, right. and I said, "Wait a second, do I fight this on behalf of uh, moral, ethical duties, or do I realize that this is the way these people was this operate?" At CVS. No, no, no. It's not, it was a, uh, the, obviously the stitching. You and were at a hospital. Was well, yeah, was uh, it was an emergency care, but it was a private. It was a private practice, and. Uh, I must have signed off on the the right for them to go ahead and build. So they build, they pay, charge you five thousand yeah. total, and then they build the insurance. No, it's two different incidents, but okay. yes, they build. Wow! So I realized that unless we change it, uh, 
to a, an idea where create that environment that you just described at the CVS and that I've benefited from, so I'm assuming many millions of people have given this a try, why not incentivize, and this is something that I wrote about in my book, uh, incentivize your, your local hospital to expand its facility by 10% every 10 years into the countryside or into their footprint. If they can't do the footprint within their facility, mm-hmm. then into, when I mean countryside, I don't necessarily mean farmland, but uh, inner city uh, within miles of their main facility. And then they're free to sell these clinics over the course of decades, obviously, because they, they're going to get a benefit, either a real estate tax benefit or state tax benefit or maybe even a subsidy and then expand nonprofit hospitals nationwide so more people have access to care, especially people who don't live close to hospitals. I call it the uh, the Countrywide Expansion Act, Countrywide Hospital Expansion Act. Do you think that maybe we should go towards uh, the, the good old days where your country doctor had his own clinic and therefore you're more likely to go to him before you go to, you know, you just go to the big city for the major surgeries? You think that would work? In other words, give uh, make more uh, accessible the healthcare itself, and that would drive down costs because naturally that would be a form of competition. So I agree with you that more competition is better and more suppliers are better. Um, I'd be uh, hesitant about using hospitals as the foundation for doing that because it turns out uh, hospitals uh, have a history here of uh, buying up physician practices and using that as a way of increasing their market leverage. This, that's very true. Yep. Uh, and so rather than, you know, double down on having hospital-dominated health care, uh, we ought to be pushing more people to supply outpatient treatment and not requiring mm-hmm. or encouraging hospitals to necessarily be the people that do it. Right. And so the retail medicine uh, has the advantage that it leverages off of an existing, you know, retail infrastructure and doesn't reinforce the power of hospitals that they're already using to right. set high prices. So it's a, it's a form of centralization. It, it would be that, better to use somebody like CVS or even Walmart or Walgreens to, to expand the patient, you know, the... The, the fast-track Yeah, not, before you go to the hospital, because he's right. Hospitals have a track record of trying affording, to, affording. And also, like in Florida, you, you, in order to expand your hospital, you need a certificate of need, which is now being done away with. But that allows hospitals to block competition. So that's another bad uh, fact. But, yeah, certificate of need, uh, uh, you know, has its origins in a, a view that we should plan the way in which the economy works. Mm. Gee, doesn't that sound familiar? Right. Um, and, you know, the idea was if we have, if we allow hospitals to expand, everybody will want their own helicopter and everybody will overbuild. Mm. Uh, and in the rest of the economy, we don't feel the slightest desire to, you know, keep a GM from building another plant if it thinks that it needs it. Yeah. Uh, similarly, you know, if LG wants to build another factory to manufacture flat panel TVs, that's their business. Mm. If they guess right, they'll make a lot of money. If they guess wrong, it's yep. uh, their loss, and they don't have to persuade some government regulator that they need, need the right. facility. Yeah. The other problem with this is, though, again, the hospitals tend to capture the program, right. and they use it to keep out competitors. Right. 
Absolutely. Now let's go back to the voucher strategy. What about health savings accounts? Is that I think that's something that Doctor um, the guy Ben Carson Ben Carson was for. for. Yep. Um, and you know Milton Friedman before him. Yep. Um, and John Goodman, who's a, a health economist out of Texas. I thought he was a comedian. No. <laughs> Different one. A different one. Different one. And then there's an actor too. Um, but anyway, uh, you know, we health saving accounts are uh, a version of what we argue for in the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, the current approach uses tax subsidies to try and encourage people to invest in them and to sort of even the playing field for people who have traditional employer-based insurance. Right. Our view is that, you know, you don't want to use tax subsidies at all, um, right. but some kind of health savings account uh, has a lot of promise because these kinds of bills, when they come, are big, and so you need to encourage people to save up for them just like they save up for other things. Right. Yeah, I, it seems it seems to me that if the government knows pretty much how much they spend on public-funded health care based on our population, it would make sense for what you said earlier that a, a lump sum is given to you, you as an adult when mm-hmm. your child is born, and then it's up to you to save this money as a child grows up. Mm-hmm. In other words, keep obesity down, keep them active, right. uh, regular <laughs> visits to the doctor, mm-hmm. so that when they're older and they manage the same account when they turn 18, that person will now have, a ma- uh, his employee will have to match uh, every year based on salary. And mm-hmm. that seems to be a a, a, a way to uh, curb the, the this moral hazard you all seem to be so enthralled about, yep, yep, which yep. I'm really opposed to in my in my book. Mm-hmm. It's uh, And then there's also this other idea that uh, perhaps is even the most controversial one yet, which is to suggest that 20, 30, 40% of your Social Security contribution in your paycheck no longer goes to retirement, but has to go to uh, yeah, funding premiums. That opens a can of worm because Social Security itself is maybe bankrupt. So, Well, that's the idea. The idea is to ha- divert these monies instead of a for retirement, mm-hmm. which gives people false senses of retirement. I know a lot of people on, on Social Security, and they're really regretting retiring solely on that. It was mm-hmm. supposed to be supplemental. Right. Most people just realize over the course of decades that for some bizarre reason or for lack of intelligence or just sloppiness or laziness or just not thinking at all, really thought they were going to retire on Social Security and find themselves having to leave their nope. cities to go live out no, in the boonies. I hear that Medicare is a better program. What, what do you say about Medicare, David? Uh, well, let me actually, before we do that, let me just say something quick about Social Security, uh, okay. which is it reminds me of a former colleague of mine once said to me, you know, Social Security and tenure are very similar. Not enough money, but for the rest of your life. Right. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, you yep. know, I think Social Security is facing real fiscal challenges. I think Medicare uh, is facing even worse challenges, and mm. they hit much sooner. Yep. Okay. Um, and there are some reasons for the difference I'm happy to talk about, although we're running out of time, yep. and I don't want to. I want to be sure I address the issues you want to talk about. Um, I actually have a book about Medicare that I published uh, about ten years ago uh, with the Cato Institute as well. It's called Medicare Meets Mephistopheles. <laughs> wow! Repeat uh, that. Repeat that for the audience. A bunch of the problems with the Medicare program. Uh, and 
why things look the way they do, and the intervening years have only made the arguments, I think, more clear uh, and more simple for people to understand. Uh, we're, we promised a lot more than we set aside money for, and the demographics are just really unfavorable here. Not only that, but the, the low birth rate, there's no one to pay Social Security tomorrow. That's, that's what I mean by the demographics. Yeah, the demographics. The number of uh, workers relative to the number of retirees. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, a, it's astounding because we're in negative territory for the first time, uh, as Europe has been for decades. And, uh, yeah, I think it comes to a crashing halt when nobody can pay for tomorrow's elderly. There's no one around today <laughs> to pay for it. And the people who are working today are going to be lesser simply because of robotics. and uh, the Robotics will just open up new careers and opportunities. I can't wait for it. It's well, I can't, wait for, I can't it, wait for the Democratic Party to find a way well, to tax it's robots. It's coming to law. Artificial intelligence is coming to law. So, so artificial taxation for artificial intelligence. Yeah. Okay. Well, it'll be fertile opportunities for lawyers, I am confident. All oh, right. yeah, yeah that's, that's an opening. That's a way to think about it, David. Yeah, so um, I always have, you know, a, a splinter moment in our show to, you know, kind of stick attorneys. And and for this show, I'm going to stick attorneys with this moral hazard issue. Yeah. Because you true. all invented it. It's not just attorneys. It was invented by the yeah, insurance you guys, industry. Yeah, you guys just say jest, the always. The insurance industry. It's all you. The go insurance to, on the insurance. The attorney in the insurance. Coffee House in London. Go back to Venice, the exchange. And there they were attorneys had, back then, too. They had attorneys then, too, yes. Yes. Okay. So you guys never get out. I'm just a layman here, so I feel I like to poke fun to you guys. So thank you very much for your call, and uh, I thank hope you, that Thank you, David. We, Way to go. You call us again. Go Maroons. And I really appreciate that you didn't uh, promote the University of Chicago as Ed does on a regular basis. <laughs> he did it for me. All right. Thank you very right, much. Thank you. Take care. That See, now right. that's a learned uh, discussion of health care, and there's more to talk about. Not know. only that, but he, uh, he, was, very, uh, he was very appealing and very uh, cordial for my objections. Absolutely. He could have insulted me for Absolutely. being a dummy. But I think I'm right. Absolutely. So now... Who is this... Carl Denninger, I think. Uh, this is Mac on the Rock with the Concrete Conservative and Ed Vidal. Who do I have the pleasure to speak with on WSQF 94.5? You're live. This is Carl Denninger calling in for our segment today. Hi, Carl. Thank you very much. Can you hear, can you hear Ed Vidal? Yep, I can hear you just fine. Well, okay. thank you for calling because we just had a law school professor fellow at the Cato Institute who's written a 500-word or a 500-page book on uh, healthcare economics, and we went through a lot of issues, but I want our audience to know that you are just as much of an expert on healthcare because on behalf of the startup company and maybe other companies that you were managing, you had to buy healthcare for your employees. So if that doesn't make you a healthcare expert, nothing will. What, what did you think of our uh, first hour's discussion? Well, I, I didn't get to hear the, uh, the hour of conversation, but I did read the book. Oh, great. So and, um, you know, it, it's, it's rather astounding that uh, we, we spend 500 pages of ink, literally. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I have long maintained is that we are overpaying by a factor of five. Yep. for health care in the United States. In other words, it should cost about a fifth of what it costs now. Yep. And if it did, you would need health insurance because you'd be able to just pay cash 
other than for catastrophes, much like you buy fire insurance on right. your house. And it would be real fire. insurance, because right now we use everything for insurance. Yeah. Right, but here's but here's the problem. Um, what what was pointed out was incident after incident of fraud, and by the way, fraud. When you're talking about the amounts of money involved here, it has another word associated with it. It's felony. Yep. And last time I checked, felonies are supposed to land you in prison. So maybe, you know, one of the, one of the problems I have with works like what Cato put together is they spend 500 pages detailing fraud after fraud after fraud. They point out that between fraud and unnecessary care, which, which by the way, is not harmless. Anytime that right. some medical provider does something to you, there's right. a risk of something going wrong. Right, okay? or even taking out your tonsils if you it's unnecessary. Yeah, they give you a prescription for something you don't need, you might have a bad reaction to the drug or, you know, whatever. Yep. Um, so unnecessary <laughs> care is actually harmful. It's not neutral. It doesn't just cost you money. It may cost you your life. Yep. And yet, they, they estimate that between those two things, without even getting into all the price fixing, right. 50% of what is spent on healthcare is wasted. Mm -hmm. So if half is wasted or fraudulent, and then you get rid of the monopolists, we easily get to 80% reduction in cost. Maybe 90. That's one way to do it. Yep. Yeah, but that, well, um, it, know, that talk I, about I, a, talk I, about a I, new moral hazard. <laughs> yeah, my problem with this whole thing is they, they spend all this ink on the problem, and never once they say these people need to go to jail. I mean, they, they did detail a bunch of people who did go to jail for ripping off Medicare and things like this. Right. All right, Miami, Miami Dade is the capital of the, of the Medicare fraud. Yeah, in many respects. You're yeah, up in the, well, yeah. Medicare My late mother, um, I ran her money for the last few years of her life because she was becoming increasingly incapable of handling it on her own. And on multiple occasions, she had a Medicare Advantage plan. She'd go get for some prescription filled. They'd charge her the copay. She could have gone to Walmart and spent a third the money of the copay just right. buying the drug for cash. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. And Walmart is especially a good good place. I mean, it, it makes a big difference where you go shop. Well, yeah, but I mean, you know, you're, you're not talking about you know a dollar here, right? <laughs> right. So your your point is that you think that this really should be more of a criminal law approach to the healthcare crisis or the crisis in healthcare costs. Yeah. It's, it's not just there, though. It's it's everywhere that big business is involved. You take a look at what just came out with regards to Boeing and the 737 MAX just in the last day, that Boeing knew a year before the first crash mm -hmm. that this system had problems and was prone to do bad things. And yeah. they did nothing with that information. Well, part they of the problem... The they yeah. didn't do anything about it. Well, part now, of the problem is that there's the no competition for Boeing. There used to be Lockheed and Douglas and 
Boeing, and then Airbus came along. But there's all this consolidation, uh, and I agree, Boeing 737 MAX is an example of what happens when you have this kind of consolidation. Uh, at the same time, Airbus built this huge Airbus A380, and, and about 10 years ago it started flying, and now they've shut it down because it's not economical. So every time you have over-consolidation in the industry, let me give you another one, the American banking industry. There are six commercial banks now that control over 50% of our deposits and one of them, Wells Fargo, keeps you know, committing fraud. They, they make up these false accounts for customers that don't exist and just to satisfy management, then management finds out and there's all this fraud. So I think your point is, is correct that there, you know, there's a lot of criminal and, and wrongful activity in corporations, but I think part of it is there's little competition. If, the, if Boeing knew that they had to explain things clearly, or you could go to Lockheed and buy a commercial aircraft. You could go to Douglas and buy a commercial aircraft. Used to be uh, the British used to have a British Aerospace used to have commercial aircraft. Now there's just two uh, producers of commercial aircraft. So I think in all these cases, it's really the antitrust uh, issue that I think is is more important. Not not the criminal law, corporate compliance, but you know we we the government is is following policies that facilitate consolidation in industry after industry after industry. And the more we have of that, the more of this corporate fraud we're going to see. Well, that's true. And, and, but the problem is that, it, it, you know, look at what just happened on Colorado. You had a truck driver, young, yep. inexperienced. It appears that he blew past a runaway truck ramp with dead brakes mm. instead of going up the ramp. Oh, okay. And as a result of that, he came to the bottom of the of the hill, couldn't stop, right. plowed into a bunch of cars that were stopped for an earlier accident, killed four people. Yep. They've charged him with vehicular homicide, which is entirely appropriate given what he did. Right. Okay. He had the opportunity to not wreck the truck by going up the runaway truck ramp. It right. would have been expensive. He probably would have gotten fired because it would have cost them thousands of dollars to get it out of there. Right. But nobody would have died. Right. Instead, he decided not to go up the ramp, even though he knew he had no brakes. Wow. And, and as a result, there's there's several people that are dead. Okay. Um, Boeing knew that there was a problem with their aircraft. They didn't do anything about it. As a result, there's 300 people dead. Yeah. Um, you have a medical industry that kills due to negligence. It is, is the third leading cause of death in the United States. Right, hospital deaths. One example that Cato brought up, and I've seen documented elsewhere, is this situation with Central Lines, which is a, basically an IV line that's placed for medication in a hospital. Mm -hmm. There is a very simple set of procedures that reduces the risk of getting an infection to essentially, statistically, zero. The hospitals do not follow that procedure. And the reason they don't is because it takes a little more time. Yep. And as, as a result of that, a significant number of people get infections in the hospital right. from this, for which the hospital then gets to bill you. And a not insignificant number of people are killed. Right. Now, yep. if you or I did something like that through <clears throat> negligence, we'd be in jail. Yep. And Betsy McGoy, who... Um uh, is uh, based in New York. She's a critic of Obamacare. She's written a book on that. Hospital uh, infections are, are more dangerous than the illness you went in with. 
Yeah, well, I, they nearly killed my sister a number of years ago sure. this way. They operated on her when they shouldn't have. And yep. she coded in the recovery room. <laughs> you know, spent an extra month there. If they right. had refused to do the procedure in the first place because of the comorbidities that she had, that wouldn't have happened. Okay, but I would suggest that all these uh, wrongful uh, health care and wrongful aircraft manufacturing is usually cured, and we have experience curing it and addressing it with competition. And back when Douglas Aircraft was uh, competing with Boeing and uh, Lockheed was doing the same, I think you had more, you know, you could go to two or three different salesmen and they'd give you a clearer picture of what was going on. So I would suggest that the answer in the healthcare industry is what we call the voucher strategy. That is, have consumers be the ones that are paying and become active purchasers, uh, whether it's with healthcare uh, savings accounts or whether it's with the um, employer uh, in insurance coverage. But whatever it is, I think it's like in schools, uh, school choice and school vouchers are the way to hold the teachers and the administrators accountable because the parents can, can put, you know, the, the, the teachers and the, par and the schools have to compete. So that's my suggested uh, response is that it's not just a criminal law. You know, I agree. There's a lot of fraud and felony. There's antitrust law opportunities because of all the price fixing. But I would say the, the best strategy is the, a voucher strategy where the customers, the consumers, are the active purchasers, and they choose between different providers and at different levels. You know, you don't need to go to... Uh, uh, a, you know, a medical uh, center necessarily for what Manny did to his thumb, uh, but you know, and then if you have a cough, pneumonia, even pneumonia, you can probably take care of it at a CVS or a Walmart medical center. But what's your well, <coughs> go ahead? Yeah, I, I would agree with that. But the, the way you you implement that is you have to get rid of the third-party payer system right. we have today. If you're going to have insurance, you know, you think about this. What we do today is, first off, we allow medical providers to not tell you what something's going to cost before you buy it. Right. But think, think about the insanity of this. It, you know, I, I happen to be in my car right now. Let's say that I need gas. So I stop for gasoline, and there's no price on the pump. There's four gas stations, but there's no prices. Right. I have to fill the car with gas. And then they ask me who my car insurance company is. Yep. And depending on who I use for car insurance depends on what my gas costs. So if I use Geico, it's three dollars a gallon. If I use State Farm, it's two and a quarter. If I use, uh, you know, auto owners, it's four fifty. All right. But I have no way to know ahead of time. And because the gas is already in the car, I have no option but to pay them at that point because I already got the gas. Yeah, we that's, we that's, discussed that with. That uh, yeah. yeah, we uh, uh, I think we discussed that before when you la when you last time you called, and we also discussed it with Professor Hyman about the price list. Without a price list, the medical business can ne can never be uh, not only could it be uh, cannot be quantified, but you can't really right. improve it or make it worse. Yeah, well, there's just no way. Part, part of the problem was government interference back in World War II, where the government imposed wage and price controls and employers had to attract workers through giving them benefits like health care. So that's where this got started. It became a that's where the third party payment came in and that's a source of a lot of the problem. So if you if we were to start going back to a, a school choice 
a health care choice situation, then maybe we'd have to get rid of that uh, uh, tax benefits for employer-provided insurance so that everything is equal. And then you don't look for insurance. You, you, know, you have health plans. You look for a job. You look for a job. Well, you can look for a job, and then you, you pay, or maybe the, they give you a, a health voucher that you can use wherever you want. That's another. But would well, that apply it, to it, f- it uh, fired employees job. as well? No. Also, oh, you were losing your insurance when you got fired. Well, that's right. So you have to have some way of, have, of being able to buy insurance, whether you're fired or not. That would not carry that insu- uh, all those third yeah, party. Port- uh, they call that portability. Portability, right? Yeah. You have to. Well, have to- yeah, but but you have to do. See, so you have to decouple the two things. You have to decouple who's paying from who's getting. It's, it. You could fix ninety percent of this in an afternoon. You pass a one-sentence law that says all persons, all prices must be posted, and all persons must pay the same price. Nobody would put up with you being charged more money because you're black in a store than because you're white. Okay? No one would tolerate that sort of thing. These days, if you tried something like that, they'd burn your store to the ground. So, the way to solve this is... You all have to have a price posted for everything. Right. And everyone pays the same amount, no matter how they pay, whether it's cash, insurance, whatever. You, you negotiate for whatever insurance you want. You buy whatever insurance you want. You get whatever you, know, whatever you want to do with that. But whether you show up with insurance, without insurance, whether you're on Medicare, Medicaid, whatever, the price is the price. This is how much it is. You need your appendix out. It's $2,300, period. Okay. Yeah, well, yeah, we were, we were addressing that issue with uh, Professor Hyman when we were talking about the same the, the same MRI with the same machines at right. the same it has time to be for the same price. It has to be the same price, and yet it's not. If, uh, it's whatever you can stick it to the insurance for, and it's pretty obviously, pretty obvious that the insurance companies wanted it this way because they want to be able to make yeah, money. They're, period. They're gaming the system, and that way they can charge people more. If that was what he said at universities. They charge different prices for the same education to different parents. If the parents can afford to pay full freight, then they'll take the full freight. If they want students and the parents can only afford half, then you know maybe they give the student a, a, a scholarship. That's how they charge different Well, when prices. they give them the scholarship, it means the yeah. government will pay for it. Whatever, yeah, <laughs> whatever, yes. Yeah, well, so, or a loan, you know, sticking with a loan. against this kind of thing in general. You know, I live in Florida. There's a hurricane coming. You can't jack the price of gasoline by $5 a gallon because there's a storm coming. Okay. So tell me why, if I'm having a heart attack and I can't negotiate, why you get to screw me for three times as much? Yeah, it, it really is amazing. And I also posed to Professor Hyman, uh, what about this moral hazard issue? Well, he gave me the answer that it was moral hazard. That's part of insurance. Uh, yeah, uh, these forever. attorneys have got a built-in scheme, and they claim, and they both claimed, Ed, Ed agreed with him, that there's a that the reason for deductibles was the so-called moral hazard, <clears throat> and unless moral hazard is redefined by today's standards, uh, we'll never have a fix here. There's no reason why there should be a deductible for anything in healthcare, and let it let it be let it be known that you know you're going to pay a premium and you're going to get care, and they can't have. Uh, a, re- a reason because well you could th- have that you could have a, a, a no deductible with insurance no deductible yes you but could. if there is one with a deductible that's an excuse to raise the premium on the one without no, deductible no 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 you have to make deductibles no, illegal his period point, no his point was 
that in Obamacare, Obamacare required everyone to be covered, and they required at a certain price uh, for, for coverage. So the only variable was that the insurance company said, okay, we can do that, but now look at this uh, deductible. And it's like a $10,000 deductible. If it were illegal, they could never... Those then, they wouldn't, then they wouldn't provide the coverage. Okay, well, then we go to the one guy who does provide it, and he gets all the business. The government. No, nobody would provide it. You need they would No private company would provide That's it. That's not true. The majority of people never use their health care. Ever. Really? They pay their premiums and never use it. They I'm just, sure some people that I bet you people. that more than uh, more than seventy percent of people don't get don't use their health care until at the very end. You know when they're sixty years right. old and, and at they're the dying. End, there's a lot of hospice care, of course. But, sixty, uh, yeah, yeah, that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, don't you agree? Well, I, I, the, okay, yes and no, <laughs> and, and and I'll qualify it for this reason. The the purpose of a deductible on an insurance policy is is a fraud deterrent aimed at the consumer. Yep. All right. So the reason you have a deductible on your collision coverage on your automobile is so that when you're the dum-dum and you back into a post and you ding your bumper up a little bit, you don't turn around and claim that and have the insurance company replace right. your bumper cover. Okay, which may cost a yeah, but that, but that does but that does not apply but, in healthcare because of the pain. Here's the problem: what the, what happened in health insurance, especially after Obamacare came in, is that the it gave the the health companies an incentive to jack the prices that they charge right. because until you meet the deductible, you pay the full bill. Right. Yeah, I gave him the example and, of my of my surgery. I, and so, Right. So essentially, the, and you got to understand something about insurance as a business. Insurance is a regulated business. It has a regulated profit margin. So an insurance company is only allowed to make a certain percentage, typically 10%, and that's all. So the only way for an insurance company to make more money is for the amount of money that goes through it and claims to go up. Okay, well, well uh, explain that to the audience again. There's, you're saying that okay. there's a law that right. limits how much insurance, they can profit? Insurance is a regulated industry. Uh, yeah, that we know. Okay. Now, the, right. But what they're regulated to is, is to the amount of profit they're allowed to make. And how do you, so how do you, uh, how do you enforce that? Well, the, the way they enforce it is that every year the company has to file its financials with the state insurance regulators along with their, with their expected premiums, what they're going to charge you, whether it's for car insurance, house insurance, health insurance, whatever. And the insurance regulation board within the state, it's state by state, it's not federal, looks at those numbers, and if the company is making more than the amount that they're allowed to by law as a percentage, then they will say, no, you can't charge that much in premiums, you have to charge less. So the company has an incentive not to be efficient because they can pay as long as they can this is a business expense having more people on staff they have every reason to do it because that's allowable that's a business expense it's not profit however and by the way that includes the, the executive salaries okay which of course they love right executives always love to make a lot of money so that's perfectly fine however there's always so much squeezing in the lemon you can get that way if you're an insurance company do you want to make 10% of $1 million or 10% of $100 million? Right, so they have an incentive to increase their revenues. 
and it's the amount of money that goes through them that matters. The revenue. So when you look at car insurance companies, car insurance companies want you to drive $50,000 cars because every time you smash one, $50,000 goes through them. They don't care what happens beyond that as long as you don't die. That's why they love airbags because they made many accidents survivable that otherwise weren't. And if you die, you don't buy any more car insurance. <laughs> and they make the cars more expensive, too. And faster. Well, yeah, so, it makes, so they win both ways. The right. car is more expensive because the airbags cost more money. And when you wreck, you're less likely to die. And if you die, you're not a customer anymore. Right. So the, the insurance companies love this. Health insurance works the same way. They do not care if you get cancer and it costs $500,000. Because that's $500,000 they have to process through their system. If you get cancer and it costs $5,000, they think that's terrible. No, darn. Well, uh, you know, uh, today has been uh, very rewarding for me personally because I realize that the two things, these two statements that I hold to be true will clean up this system. One is the point you made where we all got to be priced the same. We all got to be charged the same. We have to have a price list. You're, you and I are in agreement with that. I wrote that in my book. But the so, way to achieve that is not through legislation. But we have to redefine moral hazard. You guys yeah, are completely no. full way, of it. The, the way to have equal When you're telling me that is, people are going to fake going to the to doctor, that's a hypochondriac. Okay, but to your first point, the way to have equal pricing is to have more competition. Because if there are lots of different places where you can get your health care, if there are lots of different places where you can go to school, then the, the providers cannot pick and choose and charge different prices to different people. That's the key, to have more competition and to have more of a choice way of paying, like a, a, a voucher or a school choice uh, model instead of uh, you know the, the ones that we have now. Employer, whether it's employers or Medicaid, Medicare, BA, federal employees, public school teachers, whatever it is. The way to, to, to get the price list and everyone to the same price is more competition. No, I, the, I disagree with you. I think it has to be mandated by law, period. No, you have I to thought you were a conservative. But you have to post your prices. That's capitalism. No, no, It's no. dishonest there's, capitalism. There's no, there's no requirement that a coffee shop post its prices. There's no legal requirement. So why should there be a legal requirement that a healthcare provider post his prices and he would simply if because there were more because it's a uh, healthcare is a matter of life and death. Oh come on, you I think we're going to say it's a right. No, health care is not a right because okay. the skinny guy shouldn't have to pay for the obesity of the fat guy like myself. I'll never I'll never fall for that. There's no way healthcare could be a right. a right because then you know alcoholism well, and drug abuse would be felonies. Well, I suggest that uh, the uh, the price list will be provided. Everyone will pay the same price if we have more competition. And the way to get to more competition is to make the customer, the consumer, but sovereign. You you know, yeah, but you can't get there from here in today's world because you have two things in the way of it. Mm -hmm. You have Medicaid first off, yep. which is a huge problem. Medicare yeah. is an insurance plan, and those people who say that it's it's going bankrupt, which is true, by the way, is because the price has gone up by 500%, but the tax hasn't gone up at all. Right. If you got rid of the escalation in cost, Medicare would be instantly and permanently solvent. Mm. The problem with Medicaid is that Medicaid is perfectly happy to let you drink yourself into oblivion, and then everybody else gets to pay for it. 
the solution, and then the other problem that goes along with that is EMTALA, which Ronald Reagan signed. All right? So EMTALA is the law that says that if you're having a heart attack and you have no money, they have to treat you. Right. And, and, and by the way, they can't recover from anybody else. So what do they do? They hide the cost and they screw everybody else right. who isn't having a heart attack. And that is the sort of distortion that the government put in place and needs to get rid of. So I've got a solution to that. I, I, I wrote a rather long article on this. There was a multi-point plan that would legislatively yeah. fix essentially all of this. Why don't you give us and your website, and what is that? It's, it's at market-ticker.org. Uh, it comes up, if you look down the right-hand sidebar, mm-hmm. it comes up as the plan to fix health care for everyone. market dash Ticker.com. Org.com. Org. Org. Okay. Market-ticker.org. Right. And and there's a there's a relative, there's a fairly long post there that goes into it, and then there's a second part that's linked off the first that explains how the implementation would work. But the way to solve the Medicaid and Imtala problem is first off, you get rid of Imtala completely. Mm-hmm. You also get rid of Medicaid. Now, people would howl and say, well, what do poor people do that have no money? And the answer is this. If you're a citizen or a lawful permanent resident, in other words, you have a right to be here in the United States, yep. and you go to get medical care and you have no way to pay for it, it gets billed to the Treasury and it's a tax lien. Mm-hmm. Now, if you die and you have no estate, oh, gee, <laughs> Uncle Sam ate it, right? If you do have an estate, it's recoverable. And this is no different than what we have now, except it's superior, because if you have nothing today, then we eat it, but we eat it at a ridiculously inflated price, right. and we eat it for people who have no no means to pay, no desire to pay, and by the way, they could come into having some money later and they still get to keep it. This way, if you get billed and you have money, you can pay that off within a reasonable period of time without any penalty. If not, it's a tax lien, you owe it with interest. If you come into money later, you can pay it off. If you can't pay it and you die, well, you know what, we end up eating it, but we were going to do that under today's system, so it's no worse. However, because Medicaid is gone, the choice that people have in terms of providers, procedures, being able to shop price, figure out what's going on and what they want to do, is massively multiplied over what you have today for those people. And we get rid of the entire problem. First of all, we get rid of the problem of treating illegal immigrants. You, you just There's simply no obligation to do it, period. Mm-hmm. Right. You can't cost shift that on the taxpayers, all right, because there's, there is no impala. It's gone. Uh, and hospitals that choose to do that are going to have themselves a little bit of a problem with paying customers and that their costs are going to be higher and uh, people aren't going to go there. Mm-hmm. All right, well, maybe we'll see that. Well, that's that's. Uh, I'm not holding out. I'm not. You know, I'm not holding my breath. Period. I keep on thinking that the people who are analyzing this are the same ones that keep on asking to analyze this. The Jonathan Gruber's of the world. I like to know why David Hyman wasn't involved in the Obamacare design. I think he was opposed to it, actually. Good. Yeah. Good. Now that explains why he wasn't involved. Right. They but he sure him. gave Jonathan a pass. Well, no, Jonathan's a respected economist, so you know it's kind of like not after gangsters. what I heard. What he said, he's I a know. disrespected yeah. economist. 
it's you know it's like uh, 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 a racket know, runner, a, a gangsters. Uh, gangsters. Have uh, the insurance companies wrote other. the Obamacare law was so yes, obvious in many cases. Yes, and, and they fu- and they subsidies. funded him, and, and they're they- getting all. They were getting all these subsidies, which were not in the statute. They were really extra legislative. Yep. Well, Mr. I'd like to call you Derringer. What, how do you properly pronounce your last name? Because Derringer is the name that, you know, you're a real gun shooter, shoot from the hip kind of guy, and I agree with... From the panhandle. Yeah, for, and you're from the panhandle, so you're from the, the gun grip. The, uh, no, you're actually holding the the, the actual barrel, because you live up in the panhandle, so you're actually holding the barrel. Uh, so I, uh, I'm much more with you, much more aligned with you than than the healthcare economists out there because it is all about the racket and the fraud and the price fixing. And, and uh, people are not respecting the, the, the guy who really busts his ass, which is your physician, who's always studying, who's always in medical school, even after he graduates. And he should be able to make a damn good living. And instead, he's paying all his earnings to freaking insurance to cover himself in case of malpractice. And that's what's so insidious about all this. And we didn't even touch upon that today. So I, I thank you again for your call. But, uh, you know, this has got to, I, I would like to, you know, do this more often because I think people in our audience have got to be appreciating the fact yeah. that we're being fed a bunch of bullshit. Mm-hmm. And shit, bullshit. Yeah, we could lose our federal community. We could lose our license. It's bullshit. Yeah. Yep. Whatever that looks like. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, thank, thank, um, for those that go to the website, if you click on display list of topics, on the right-hand side, it's uh, it's it's right there. I've got it up on the screen here while I'm talking to you. It, uh, it's called the Bill to Permanently Fix Healthcare for All, and uh, the original publication date was from 2011. Manny, you should put that on the on our website, wspfradio.com. Yes, uh, send uh, send added text so I can uh, uh, post it on the website under. Under the descriptions of this podcast, because you can always go to our website, wsqfradio.com, and go to the Concrete Conservative Show under this date, and you're 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 free to embed our a, podcast we onto your website. Both their websites, uh, both Carl and then David had a website, which uh, well, Carl, you can you yeah. can uh, you can post your this poke you know yeah. this recorded. Will be up tomorrow, so you can uh, embed it on your website as well. Yeah, send it over. You Carl. bet. I sure will. Well, thank you very much for your call. Thank you, Carl. Good to hear from you. Thank you. Bye bye. Thank you very much. Okay. You bet. Take care. Yeah, David Hyman's is uh, www.overchargedforhealthcare.com, and that has a lot of good ideas, including the moral moral hazard is an old uh, standard. It's not acceptable to me. Yeah, for you guys are all, you guys are ridiculous. Policy. Goes back to insurance policies. When Who cares? Started. Who cares? I go back to David Rockefeller when he invented the FDA. Who cares? It was wrong. Well, that's different. The FDA, as, as we talked with David, the FDA slows down a lot of necessary drugs. It also kills a lot of people because they don't examine anything. There's side effects to everything and people that die anyway because right. of these drugs they approve. <laughs> and guess what? You can, a half an orange solves this, an apple solves that. There's all kinds of medicine. Healthier living, eating. Yeah. And uh, they, they've completely pushed out the chiropractic uh, people for pain, back pain, lower pain. You think that's important? Absolutely. A lot of, yeah. a lot of problems that are what solved. About, what about uh, these substitutes for uh, smoking, uh, the vaping, uh, nicotine vaping without the ash? 
so that you avoid the I, cancer causing. I, I, I could I could care less. I'm a cigar smoker. You're a so. cigar smoker. You don't want the uh, jewel for cigars. No, I think that would be incredibly boring. Oh come on! Because us cigar smokers are like wine drinkers. We take our no. our palate seriously, and my you know many people find the cigar to be just gross, and I can see the look on their faces when I'm smoking. But the truth is, I only like to smoke my cigars just like I only like to drink the wine. By the way, you got to take a wine bottle. Thank home you. Today. Uh, thank you. I got a shipment of wine here. That's yeah, great. because the executive producer has me as a stock boy, a receiver right. for Federal Express, and we and we have like five employees catering to his deliveries well, here. Well, what about the cigars? I, you you recommended some good places in Little Havana like uh, El Titan. Well, de actually, Mrs. The Candela effect. I have still haven't uh, gone to the cigar ba- uh, lounge no, right. where she where, works. What's the name of that cigar lounge down by Dadeland? It's um, give Jupiter, me a moment, Senior. Uh, no, Neptune. Neptune cigars. And there's one on Eighth Street that she works at. On Eighth Street. No, I'm I'm the uh, you know Titan de Bronze. Yeah, those are good. I my, go to Cava. My son and I went into their. Uh, I'm plugging you guys, and you all are not contributing to Blink Radio, so I have nothing more to say where I buy cigars. It was great to go into this uh, humidor, a room holding cigars and just That was Titan feeling. de Bronze. Yeah, that was great. I lo- that's a certain romantic event for me because yeah. when you go in there, these people have stories to tell, male mm-hmm. and female, that are rolling the cigars. And I ask very pertinent questions about life in Cuba, and I get damn good answers all because right. they are Pueblo, Pueblo small-town people. Who have a lot of time to think while you're rolling while cigars. While you're rolling cigars. That's good. There was Remember a... Freddie Pacheco, uh, the fight doctor for Sugar Ray Leonard? Yep. Okay. Well, Freddie Pacheco had a beautiful painting that was given to me, by, uh, given to my ex-wife. And I had that in my house for a long time until I got divorced. But it was a scene of cigar rollers mm-hmm. painted by him where you had the man reading the newspaper right. at the front of the front of the rolling cigar factory. Yep. Well, about 10, year, 10 or 12 years ago... Uh, a playwright uh, here, working here in uh, Miami in K- uh, Coconut Grove Theater, uh, Dinner Key, uh, 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 wrote a play called Anna in the Tropics. And it was about Anna Karenina's story from Tolstoy, but he retold it in the tropics in the cigar rolling factory in Tampa, Florida. Well, <laughs> And it, yeah, was, it was really effective. Uh, Americans uh, don't know that the first successful labor strike in the history of the United States was Cuban cigar... Uh, rollers rollers in, Tampa. in Tampa who who succumbed their employer to paying them higher wages. All right. And then bro- uh, nobody was able to break the strike. People were pissed off. They couldn't get their cigarettes and cigar. This? What year was this? Before the New Deal? 1902, somewhere like Before that. Before the New Deal, the National Labor Relations Act. It's right around that. 1902. It's right okay. at the turn of the century. That could be. Then he paid them more. And then put him on a boat and sent him all back to Cuba. Oh, no. That was the way he broke the strike. That's But he lost at the strike. He he was forced to increase everybody's pay. Mm-hmm. But soon after, every single person who was involved in that strike was put on a boat back to China, Cuba. Oh, boy. <laughs> and that's <clears throat> the end of the story. So now. Right, but, but aren't you worried that uh, smoking cigars is going to increase your health care costs and complications? Well, uh, I'm, one of the, I'm one of the worst. Uh, Healthcare patients because I don't want to live forever. Oh, okay. And you want to I'm not enjoy your there. life while you're at it. I'm one of those that I'm right on my second uh, turn of the wheel after oh. my car accident in 1987. That take me when you want, my friend. Uh, I do a lot riskier things like <laughs> drive in my golf cart on Key Biscayne than Uh-oh. than cigar smoking. And I also know my genes of my parents, so I know what I've got from my mom. I know what I've got oh, from so my dad. Oh, so they last a long time. 
No, I actually don't want to because there's dementia on my mom's side. Oh, okay. And I don't find it uh, at all appealing to go through what my mom's presently going through. And she's mm. on her eighth year of that. So if she was always worried about her high blood pressure, right. high blood pressure, high blood pressure, high blood pressure. Salt intake. And she had no moral hazard because she went to the doctor too damn much. And they yeah. prescribed her well, too damn much. Well, some people go to the doctor as a social event. Well, guess what? That's what? moral hazard. Yeah, well, that's And right. that's why this thing has to be de- redefined. No, no. it's, it's Because hypochondriacs like up. my mother <laughs> right. went to the doctor too much and had nothing to do with her right. deductible. It was just her social event. No, it was Every fear. Every six months. Worry. Fear, worry, fear, worry. And we, it's really bizarre. You're a very religious woman. I used to tell her and used to upset her. I go, Mom, if, you know, if you fear, but at the same time you love the Lord so much, mm-hmm. don't fear meeting him. And I always have this statement that it taught me it taught me a lot about my parents watching them for the last... First of all, they lived the American dream. They came mm-hmm. here as immigrants and made a ton of money. Um, um, uh, you know, Three kids with, a, with an education, the best of everything. And they didn't get to enjoy the last 20 because of their constant going to the doctor. <laughs> it was ridiculous. And guess what? When my father passed away, he was at 17 pills. When my mom fell, seventeen pills, seventeen a day. It's no, not a day, but this over the uh, week. There were there were seventeen pills that were prescribed to him, right? And some of them were taken three or four times for the week, right? But always in the regiment, never. And I, I saw I, them all over the floor I one have, day. I have two pills that are prescribed every day, and one once. Well, a look week. at the moral of the story. My mom beat him at okay. eighteen pills, and today she has one. Okay. Okay, because of her state. And they tell me it's Alzheimer. Bullshit, Bozoids. That's not true. It's dementia, acute dementia. And Alzheimer would have uh, probably uh, killed her already. So we should be on the lookout for your dementia coming I up. I right? think I already have it. Don't yep. you see how many times I mispronounced words here today? All right. Now, you know, let's change the subject now from healthcare. And since we're on the general theme, which it turns out to be the racket of healthcare attorneys. And no, the racket not, not of healthcare attorneys, but the healthcare industry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The industry of attorneys in healthcare. How about that? Can I rephrase All it that right. way? Yes, yes. The industry of attorneys in healthcare. Let's go to the idiots at Washington D.C. Central, which are all attorneys there in the House and the Senate. Yep. And what do they plan to do about the world being on fire and everybody attacking Trump? How can you want? To love your country in the same sentence as, I want Trump to go down in flames, but somehow I want America to survive this. They don't love America. They Most don't. Of the people attacking Trump don't love America. They don't. Right. They really hate everything about yeah, free market they, capitalism. Absolutely. It's too much. Being free is a huge burden. Yeah. So in other words, you'd rather, you'd rather be led by the nose. Right. Like or, no, or you think that you're going to be among the dictatorship of the proletariat. See, a lot yeah, of the, there's a food line. Right, you, a lot of the progressives think that they're going to be, you know, the technocrats running the new government. The the Chavistas making all this money in Cuba. Fidel Castro's grandson lives a very luxurious life. He was uh, on Instagram last year, and uh, he's doing great. You know, the 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 uh, dictator, the dictators in the dictatorship of the proletariat live a, a very high style life. And Fidel's kids are marginalized. There you like go. Raúl's kids. Well. So, but the but the average ordinary middle class worker is in big destitute. Trouble. Destitute, right? Yes. Um, yeah. Repeating the same realities of 
capitalism versus socialism is a wrong argument. I'm going to suggest to the audience to start comparing the real comparison today that it's occurring that for some reason Joe Biden has no recollection of or understanding of. No, well, he doesn't The know. controversy and the big argument that's being played out worldwide right now is the difference between free market capitalism and state capitalism. State capitalism is China. Free market economy is the United States. And as we heard from our previous guest, we're already getting there. We're looking more like a state, respects, capital, right. yeah, a state capitalist country where 70% of the gross national product is generated in one aspect or another by the government. And the innovators, creators, and eccentrics get the 30%. So it's like little rats coming up with a new idea. Mm-hmm. And that was Mao Zedong's grand vision in his um, paper tiger speech. And he wrote that, I believe, in 53. Okay. And then Eisenhower uh, wrote the Industrial Military Complex letter on his mm-hmm. way out of mm-hmm. his presidency mm-hmm. in 58, I believe, correct? Or 59? 60, 61. No, because the election was 60. Right. So he would have been there through 60, and then he left in January of 61. 61, so after the inauguration. Address, right. His farewell address. <clears throat> so that's the big argument. And as you can see, we're not being told that. You can only get that here because we are concrete, set in stone conservatives here. We tell you what's really going on. Start studying what state capitalism is and why the Democrats are heading us in that direction. Because they want the government to manage the economy and allow the free thinkers, because they'll think they're free thinkers, they allow the free thinkers to think that they're really free and they can just have the 30% left, what's left over Mm -hmm. in the GDP. And we have to stop it, stop it now, and yeah. don't ever let well, them take our guns. I had lunch, a very interesting lunch today with uh, a woman that I'm going to bring by next Monday for you to meet. She is the former president of the uh, Venezuelan Journalists Association. Oh, plus we got, I just just had a, a brain aneurysm here. Yeah. Uh, the the lady who's running for office. Um, Which one? The restaurateur. Irina Vilarina. Yeah. She's going to come. I'm going to bring her in. And Andy Chirino, who came last time, is running for state senate. So she's going to come, too. Against uh, Soso Rodriguez? No, no, no. She's going to running to replace Anitere Flores. Flores, yes. Who's termed out. Who's termed out. Who completely so, left so, me hanging and we're not... Completely. So we'll get a chance to talk to Angie Chirino, who's running for state senate, and pitch her on your education uh, strategy. I believe we pitched her the first time. She ignored me. No, but lost. she was running for Congress. But she's still lost. Now she's running for state senate. If you don't senate. listen to me, folks, you're going to yep. lose. Yeah. Well, she's running for state senate, and that's more relevant. As I told my, my dearest, dear Senator Cruz, <coughs> Senator Cruz... Unless you got a better wall than Trump, you're not going to win. I gave you the better wall. Put a train on it. Well, Trump certainly connected with people, and building a wall was part of it. So. Yeah, but he only needed to put his name on it and spray paint and win. Mm-hmm. This guy was given Ted an opportunity to turn it into a freight line to compete with there the Panama Canal. And we wouldn't be having any of these stupid arguments with ICE and everything like that. It would be about moving cargo, cargo, cargo. Cities being free right. zones, taxes. So in, in the future, we are going to have Irina Vilarina, who is running in the Congressional District 26 against, west of here, uh, Mur- against cool. Debbie Murcasso-Powell, a she Democrat. She should lose just because her last name is too long. Too complicated. Well, yeah. and also because she is a formal sponsor of the Green New Deal. So let's get that on the, on the That's table. That's so tacky. How can these people run, run for something that wasn't even formulated? Kind of like Obamacare. No, no, no. It's been introduced in Congress. 
It's, well, it's we forced her to vote on it. It's and it's just totally it two, ridiculous. It was five pages. So of we'll have her. We'll have uh, Andy Chirino. I heard it was a color, uh, five coloring book pages. Yeah, everything was down, green. They took down the uh, the websites, uh, and then we're gonna uh, hopefully. I don't know if we get Carlos Jimenez is running against Donna Shalala in congressional district twenty seven. And the funny thing is that all these Democrat well, congressmen. That, that's news. Say that, that again. Carlos Jimenez, mayor. Forcing me to have to vote for him again just because of the ugly duckling shalala that's got to go. Right. That's right. He's running, uh, apparently, for Congress. And the funny thing is all these Democrat congresswomen, Mercasso Powell, Shalala, Debbie Blabbermouth Schultz up in Broward County. It's amazing how they, they're shameless up there, man. They just don't vote her out. Well, they're all saying, oh, you know, we got to support the Venezuelan Yeah, because she has, she has committee uh, <coughs> chairmanships and stuff. So... <laughs> You know what you can do for Congress? What? Instead of giving it the right of passage to the seniority to decide who are who uh, participates who are the in committee, commission, people, yeah. it should be based <laughs> on uh, terms in office. Hmm. Now, there's a flaw in what I just suggested because, for, remember, I'm anti-term limit. Right. So obviously, as a, a guy who's been elected to five terms, he'll never lose his committee assignment. But you can term you can term him out. You can only sit on this committee for so long after you get it for so long. I think I think so that you, applies to Republicans. The Republicans have term limits on committee chairmanships. But just the chairmanship. I'm talking about membership. No, no. Okay, right. And, and another issue that has to be reformulated in Congress is that these people have got to be working not nine to five, but nine right. to nine. And committee meetings cannot be occurring during <clears throat> session hours. Uh, I just heard Lindsey Graham the other day, in the middle of a very important hearing, where he's sitting there just defending Bob Barr, he really had to speed things up because he had to go vote on something on the floor. Right. Well, you guess what? There, there's, that's a serious conflict yep. here. You're doing the people's business. So either we pay these people by the hour, you know, while they're voting only, right. and make them sit there in a chair, 9 to 5, like right. when the school's out, <clears throat> bell rings, everybody goes to their committee meetings. But you can't do one and the same. What I was going to say about all these Democratic congresswomen down here in South Florida. Why are you changing something on me? I no, was at the federal government. I was going back. I am You're with basically the telling government. the audience that you can give a hoot of what I just said. No, I, I heard what you said. Yeah, yeah, pension. Yeah, yeah. Go speak, here, to what my, I said, go speak to my wife. She has a better answer than me. What I said was. <laughs> go get an alcohol cells. She has um, all these Democrat congresswomen down here in South Florida are now saying that they support the Venezuelan people. But during the Obama administration, they supported Obama and well, Obama. You know, during support. the Bush administration, we also <laughs> we all gave a hoot about Chavez, and, well, except for people like me. No, wait. It, during the Bush administration in, in April 2002, come on, they could have hung him from a helicopter. They, Bush told them take him down from there. And there put was him a back chance in. to knock him out, and, and Bush they blew said it. no. And Bush said no. They blew it. Bush did not. Uh, blew, Bush blew it. Bush did not uh, approve of that coup, and that coup was done. And now that guy's living in Kendall somewhere. He used to live here in Ocean Club. There you go. And uh, every time he came into my store, I'm not going to say his name because he deserves his anonymity at this point. Young guy. He was my age. <clears throat> and he had enough money to buy everybody off to grab Chavez by the neck. And they had him in a barracks, butt right. naked for three days, shivering, begging for mercy. And they called the Bush administration. This was told to me directly yeah, no, from no, the— they, they wimped out. And Bush said, look, we don't, we don't believe in that kind of strong-arm tactics. And here we are. And here we are. Right. No, here they are. Here well, they are. We are, too. 
And guess what? In the end of the day, Americans realize, the American uh, State Department realizes that when all the ships sink, mm-hmm. all the ship ship hole sinks, yep. sinkholes, I guess, uh, the, uh, dollars come to the United States. Well, remember, Whether it's illicit, robbing, in, stealing, in pillaging, it ends up in American banks. In 1948, the U.S. State Department told President Truman not to recognize the new state of Israel. And Truman told him to go fly a kite. And, you know, we've seen what happened since then. And so it, the State Department has a, a track record of being... Communist. Yes. Right. Yes. Like, like uh, Hillary Clinton's uh, charade when when the Honduran people grabbed <laughs> Salaya by the neck in his right. pajamas and said, get Absolutely. the, Absolutely. Get the f- out of here. And she said, he should be returned to power. Why? The Supreme Court said, out. Congress said, out. Get out. And, and the Hondurans don't mess with communism, man. They, they'll put a bullet in your head. Yep. They, and they sure I, do are good at that. Yep. They don't tolerate it. Why can't the United States do the same thing? There's no reason why uh, Omar should not, there should be a taking a vote to get her out of Congress. She's supporting the enemy. Absolutely. Well, she, well you know, um, Robert E. Lee, General Robert E. Lee lost his citizenship, and so did many of the other Confederate generals and leaders. And all those senators who didn't pass uh, Amendment 13, right. 14, the, and 15. So all the Confederate leaders lost their citizenship. So clearly there's a, a track record for taking away the citizenship of people like uh, we just got to find Omar. her, find out if she uses campaign money to fund any of these groups. Well, whatever it is, she's out there fundraising for them. So why don't we ask for her do tax returns? There you go. No. Why not? No, because if she has to give them, then Trump's then, her husband. Then we have to give them. <laughs> and it's true, man. What, <laughs> uh, what Secretary Munchen said: this thing about giving tax returns. My God, if they ask it and they demand it from the president, they can demand then they it from you. They can get anybody's. Anybody. Forget it. No way. You can't. You can't. And it's a. It's a. The freak show. Uh, there is this. Uh, it's a total freak show. There, on Instagram, there's this fantastic, like, valley girl right. accented Puerto Rican saying, Oh my God, I was told that the uh, IRS was a voluntary <laughs> submission. Is that true? Is that true? And. Um, well, I don't know if it's next week. But she interviews somebody and says, Hey, it, you have to file your return. In the next oh couple, my God, I owe so much money. In the next couple of weeks, we're going to have people here uh, about the failed coup and how the uh, this whole getting the IRS is trying the Democrats trying to cover up for their failed coup. So, well, there's got to be people being in, put in orange jumpsuits. The country needs it absolutely. really bad. They've got to see some real. Well, DOJ, Barr FBI. is a real attorney general. He's the attorney general Trump should have had from the beginning, and I think he's gonna. You're gonna see some people uh, convicted for uh, indicted and convicted, and I think the the real question, because there's no question about people like Comey and Brennan and Clapper, the real question is what kind of evidence and how does it go up? Uh, Loretta Lynch, I think, is probably going to be implicated, but I think I think Barack Obama is going to be implicated. There's going to be something. that Clinton plan had a bug. Well, yeah. On the tarmac. <laughs> uh, there, there have been uh, very reliable reports, because there were people on that plane. Yeah, the pilot. And, and, well, and, and others uh, in her party. Oh, in her party. And, yeah, and so they, there, there are reports. And apparently Clinton, you know, there was nothing specific said, but he was clearly intimidating her to, so that she would know that if she didn't go easy, things would happen. So uh, At the same time, <clears throat> what yeah. I don't like... And I don't like being, first of all, I don't like being disproven because I don't think I've been disproven. But it does appear that Barack Obama wanted Hillary to win, and I don't think he did. 
I think all this was done. What do you mean he wanted didn't want Hillary? He, I don't think so. I mean, he, I believe. You think he, he wanted her to lose? Yeah. No, because that that undermines his uh, his mm. legacy, and also it put into trouble all the all the uh, yeah, spying but, that he was doing. Well, it, the spying was not the problem. I'm talking about the money for the Iranian deal that he cashed well, in. Well, that on. that too. Yeah. Well, if she's elected, then you're going to be sniffing around for four years as president, and they would have found out about the monies he's received from all the deals. He had to oh, you mean kickbacks? Absolutely. I mean, you don't give away a, a, a billion dollars to the Iranians and not get something back, especially when your chief of staff lived in Tehran growing up. What's her name? Right. Uh, Valerie Jarrett. Jarrett, yes. you're going to tell me she's not the bag woman for Barack Obama? Come on, man. She, well, look, I, she's, I, ideologically, yes. I'm it's not in sure her bank account. She's president, chairman of every every in Switzerland shell, or every shell company. or Luxembourg. Or... We investigate her right now. How come she's not even well, being... I, I, think she, I think that is going to be part of the investigation. She is how, a bag how, woman, man. How high up. She, the, uh, you know, Valerie Jarrett, now here's uh, another Barack one Obama, for, here's even, another one even for Joe you. Biden. Here's another one for you. What's that? And I was thinking about this the other day. What if Manafort was a plant gone wrong? I don't know. He a was, plant by the Democrats, because he was in. He's tied with the. He's tied with the. Uh, uh, Podesta, the Podesta. Well, Podesta is another guy that needs to. And be he was already investigated for that crime. He's now doing time for. Right. And they said we can open up this well, uh, investigation well. if you don't volunteer <laughs> to be Trump's person. Because I never really understood a person I had met once, um, Lewandowski. Why was he fired all of a sudden if he was doing a great job? Okay, the reason uh, Manafort was brought in was because at the time he was brought in... Delegate counting. I don't believe that. Yeah, you don't believe... I don't believe anybody has the art of delegate counting. They're all pledged to their candidate when they... I I went through the interview process. I know what that's like. It was thought that there was going to be a a floor fight. Well, there was because my guy was doing it. Steve Steve Lonigan. Oh, okay. The national spokesperson for Ted Cruz. For Ted Cruz. No, but they didn't materialize. And Ted endorsed uh, the Trump. One week into the the first day of the convention, um, uh, they asked him uh, on, uh, I believe, Fox News. You know that Steve is out there counting uh, delegates. Steve Lonigan? Yeah, and he goes, Steve's a loser. He's run for office, what, three times, four times? He's only won a mayor's race. He's a loser. They went that idea. And then I called him and I said, hey, Steve, you know that Trump said today that you're a loser because you've lost two campaigns and you're going to lose another one and you're sure as hell not going to overthrow him right, at the convention. Right, right. Absolutely. And he goes, wow, he gave me that much time? <laughs> that was his answer. I'm thrilled. Thank you for the call. And he was already, I was heading to Cleveland. I was going to see him in the, uh, later that day, but he had already been there for several days. And he was. He was trying to uh, have. So that's why Manafort was uh, brought in. And then he was dropped. When that didn't materialize, because he really didn't contribute anything to the campaign, and obviously look he at didn't the me- have look anything. Look at the mess he, he created. Well, what mess? I mean, he come on, he was <laughs> he was doing business with the Podestas for years. Those were in things the, before he got well, on the campaign. Well, they were still Ukraine and open yeah, up. but that was nothing to do with the Trump campaign. But it's, it was an angle to set him up to frame the, the Trump. And yet they couldn't frame the Trumpster. Well, they wasted two years of his time. Yep, I know. I, they set him back. That's the well, real, they set us back as they a country. They set the conservative movement back. For two years because of that. And I think Trump today was saying that they had uh, wasted two years of his of his presidency. Yes. So maybe he's going to look for an extension. Because while think? that cloud was hanging over his head, yeah, all they, the, they fought him hard on the All the, the cowardly wall. Republicans withdrew from Congress, and they wouldn't support him except on tax cuts. 43. Which, is, which has been a great policy. Look at the economy. 
I believe it's because the single, uh, the mandate. Well, the the reasonable deregulation, which includes the mandate. Yeah, the eliminate the mandate, eliminating the mandate, but also the and tax also cuts. with the elimination of the mandate, mm-hmm. you also allow small business owners to go beyond sixty six employees without right. having to provide right, right, healthcare. Right. And then, but That's then huge. You, you also the tax cuts and also fair taxes. You, the U.S. no longer taxes corporations on worldwide earnings, only on U.S. earnings. So that's that's fantastic. That's fair, and that's something that the the conservative think tanks like Heritage Foundation have been after for twenty years. So you would think that all these you know never Trump. So uh, you, are you taking think credit tankers. again? That, so the attorneys for the Heritage Foundation finally got what they wanted. Yes, and they should be praising Trump. You okay, would think. wait a second. And so should all okay, the other. Okay, here's to the Heritage Foundation attorneys. <laughs> and, so, and so should all the other. So should all the other never Trumpers. Does that sound like a standing ovation? And so should all the other never Trump think tankers. Trump has delivered on longstanding conservative policies, tax cuts and reform, deregulation, not only health care, environmental and energy. You know, all these pipelines need to be built. They're being held up by Obama judges. So but that's going to be overcome. Do you know that uh, Trump has now appointed 100 federal judges? Well, he's still 339 he's, show he's, from Obama. Yeah, he's got a lot to go. But I think he, Obama was 439 federal judges. <coughs> I'm not sure about over that. Over the eight years, yes. Well, the Trumpster is on his way. That means the Republicans participated. Absolutely. So and gave Obama a lot of uh, uh, a lot of selections. Yes, I know that happened in Texas, uh, where John uh, Cornyn uh, kind of you know facilitated some well, of the. Well, that rhino's got to go in this election. Do we have some. No, no, him? he's he's going to be reelected and. Uh, Ted Cruz has already endorsed him. But that's an example. That reminds me of, what's his name, endorsing McConnell. Uh, Rand Paul? Yeah, man. That guy's tacky. He, he comes in, he marshals, comes, <coughs> he rides our Tea Party wave, of which I was very proud of at the time. And then he endorses McConnell's re-election over Bevin, who apparently is very Yeah, Bevin old. is great. He's really, well, he's not the governor. Uh, yeah, and I guess what? He's got like a 27, 29% approval rating. Who? In Kentucky, he's not very popular. Bevin? Yeah. Well, he's doing a good job. He is, but... That's He'll the, get reelected. That's the problem with this country, man. If you're really smart and you do a good job, they hate your guts. Well, Ron DeSantis is uh, highly rated, right? Well, hey, he's a pick of my litter. He I was, was on, I was, on, I was on, you know, you can you can testify to the fact that... Yeah, you were on the DeSantis train. Yeah, man, way before anybody even knew who he was. I mean, we held a nice uh, breakfast here at the Artisan uh, restaurant. I'm plugging the Artisan Cafe without oh, uh, yeah, I, I any interest. Yeah, well, there was eight of us, and all those people have thanked me over and over again to, to say that, hey, you man. You picked a good one. You picked a good one. Exactly the words they use. You picked a good one, man. Yep. And um, I really, uh, uh, this is the only well, chance I have to, we're, to, we're, to we're, amend the uh, Florida Parent Empowerment Law. We're going to start having more candidates. Uh, Angie Chirino, who's running for state senator. You can talk to her about the Florida Parent Empowerment Act. I already have, and she blew me off. Well, that was she. She was running for Congress. This look, look at that! I, I say that she blows me off, and he burps at me. Well, unbelievable! He, you know what he says about my book? Oh, it's uh, humorous. A humorous? I'm not joking. <laughs> the cartoons are really good. Yeah, the cartoons. See, that means he has not read. He only saw the cover, and he probably didn't like the Benjamin Franklin's feather. Moving across the line from right to left, which has a message. What's right to left on a page? Chinese handwriting. No, I thought that was uh, Hebrew handwriting. Well, you read it right to left. The truth is that <clears throat> in Chinese, you write up and down. Up and down? Yeah, okay. you don't write horizontally. You write up and down. But it is what it is, gentlemen. So it's time for 
Calling Dr. Love by Kiss. Stay free, my friends. And then after that, you have uh, Chris Ann Hall podcast? Yeah, because we have no statues and stories today. No statues and stories today. He's he's working for Mac on the Rock at the moment. He's taking care of business. I think it would be the greatest irony of all that finally my book gets proofread by a Democrat. All right. Stay free, my friends. If you like our programming on WSQF 94.5 in Key Biscayne, you can also hear us very far away nationwide, WSQFradio.com. And if you like our audio files and our subject matter, subscribe to YouTube, Mac on the Rock Rampage. Take care and stay free.